The idea of a 10-second application and a 10-minute close is absolutely the future. And so for lenders that are not rapidly moving to, to digital today, you know, you imagine the cost savings that comes with that kind of a of a reduction in time. I think early on, we did a study that showed that it was like $127 a day. If it takes you 65 days to close, you can reduce the time by making it fully digital and you're cutting out all kinds of costs. And so it comes to, it's a competitive threat to any mortgage lender who is not digital because you know, those that are digital and that are refining the processes are going to, you know, their, their cost to close, their interest rate offers, it's going to be much lower. And, and as we talked about before, price is, is king. Hey, folks, Clayton Collins here, CEO at HW Media, and we're back for another episode of housing news. Today, we have Nick Thomas. Nick is a co-founder, president, and chief product officer of Finicity. But today, he's the EVP of the Office of Engagement and the global head of open finance innovation at MasterCard. Nick has done a phenomenal job building Finicity over a 20-year period up until the sale of the business to MasterCard in 2020, and now continues forward focused on innovation at MasterCard. We entered this conversation talking a lot about a new survey that Finicity released. We go into fintech and innovation, but I will tell y'all right now, the conversation gets into Nick's entrepreneurial story, the trials and tribulations of being an entrepreneur, the pivots and twists and turns and surfing analogies that come through building a business over 20 years. And Nick drops some serious knowledge and tells us some, some really personal stuff on the challenges of being an entrepreneur and the decision-making process of, of selling your business. Really appreciate Nick's openness and expertise. Hope you all enjoy this episode. We'll leave it to the gl global companies to have uh, 10 word plus job titles to, to really explain where you're yeah, Exactly. <laughs> I do stuff. That's yeah, you just you innovate. You do stuff and innovate at a global level. Uh, <laughs> all right, folks, we are live with Nick Thomas, the EVP in the Office of Engagement uh, at MasterCard, where he runs the open finance innovation across the globe. Um, big job, but a, a job that came through a really cool acquisition of Finicity in 2020. I can't wait to get into the details of what Nick is doing today. Uh, but also the story of how he got here. But we're going to kick off with the conversation that's really focused on on the mortgage industry um, and some topics that Finicity has uncovered in a in a really interesting survey of recent mortgage borrowers. Um, Nick, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Thank you, Clayton. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nick, this this conversation kicked off as we at Housing Wire were learning more about this survey that Finicity and MasterCard has done. You, you surveyed a thousand respondents who recently took out a mortgage and really focused in on the digital mortgage process and some of the, the takeaways, the frustrations, the pain points that these borrowers had um, as they completed their their recent mortgage can you tell us a little bit more about the, the hypothesis for this survey and uh, what, what thesis you were trying to prove out or, or uncover for learnings for the industry and, and for Finicity? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we started uh, into this world of open banking, open finance, um, we actually tackled the mortgage market first. Uh, we figured we would pick the hardest one and uh, 
And, you know, there's all kinds of nuances to, you know, bringing open finance into the into the lending and specifically into mortgage because it's so um, high value. It's, uh, um, you know, a lot of money that's changing hands and and really important to get the underwriting right. Uh, when we started, you know, the average time to kind of decide to make a decision on a loan was 10 days. And the average time to close on a mortgage was, you know, 65 days. And so early days, we actually, we targeted uh, the goal of a 10 by 10 mortgage. So a 10 minute decision and a 10 day close. And the only way you can do that is to remove steps and to, and to you know, streamline processes. You think about the last time you did a mortgage and even today, a lot of people are bringing in paper documents and uh, to their mortgage lender, and uh, or they're uploading PDFs. You know, it's it's a it's a slow process of data collection from the borrower. And so, what we did with this survey is we wanted to uncover kind of some of that anxiety and frustration the home buyers encounter uh, throughout the home buying process. You know, and and uh, I mean, this is we've been at it now for what six seven years and. And uh, it's definitely getting better, but where it was when we started was, you know, it was it was a, a long process, and it's it's getting better now. Um, and so, you know, we surveyed 100 respondents, and we pre-screened those who took out a mortgage within the last year. So um, it's pretty, it's current. It's you know, this is what's happening today. And this is buyers and refi. Uh, I believe that's, yes, it's buyers and, and refi. Okay. All right. Great. So there, there might be some different experiences in a refi process or different pain points in the purchase process. And, uh, so, so let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper there. So what themes really started to, to pop out in the responses? What were these borrowers saying, uh, in, in response to your questions? Well, I think, so one of the things was, you know, 90% of the respondents, um, they felt the loan decisioning process was a fair representation of their financial situation. You know, 89% reported the loan application experience was more stressful or equally as stressful as the home buying experience itself. Um, and when they when we asked them more directly about the most significant stressors associated with purchasing a home, the borrowers pointed to a number of different issues. You know, 30, 32% had to pay more for their home than they wanted to you know, due to competing offers, the market has just been crazy. Uh, you know, 83% of the respondents using digital verification said their loan processing time was shorter than expected or met their expectations because we are in a digital age. Um, 88% of the respondents felt comfortable giving their consumer permission data to their lender, which, you know, that's, it just shows the evolution of, of the constituency um, that, that asset and employment verification, um, you know, that, that people are used to that and they're used to doing that digitally. And so that's a really, that number has been going up. And uh, the fact that they're willing to share their personal financial information for the purpose of mortgage qualification and repayment. And uh, 60% indicated that low rates were the primary factor in their decision to refinance and Anyway, so they, I mean, just one of the one of the overarching trends here that we're seeing is that is that um, consumers are are expecting it to be digital. They're expecting it to be faster, um, and and so when they're saying that it meets expectations when using digital verification, that just 
you go back in history and people were uncomfortable, you know, the, the number of people comfortable was, was definitely less. And so it just shows the evolution of expectations and the evolution of, of just, you know, what consumer comfort is. One of the metrics that popped out to me in the survey was it 73% of respondents said that they'd return to their previous lender for future loans. And we, and we all know that the actual pull through rate or retention rate of borrowers in reality is, is much lower than that across the mortgage industry. Do you think this signals a, a potential sea change and, uh, Borrowers coming back to their lender if they're happy with the digital process or or they assume or, or in reality, the, the lender already has that that digital connection point to their to their financial footprint, which makes it more attractive to return. Or is this uh, just uh, rosy, rosy eyed thinking and these borrowers are really going to go somewhere else on the next turn? I mean, we we uh, we absolutely see that you see the you see the growth of the super app, right? This idea you know, going back to the original vision of banks that were this, you know, this this uh, walled garden of all these services that the consumers come to. But if my interest rate and the cost of my loan is super competitive um, and it doesn't matter where I go, it's better to have a relationship with one place. The reason that people go to other mortgage lenders is they shop for rates. And so as rates become more democratized, as the cost to close becomes more, um, you know, kind of more transparent and even commoditized, I think I think you'll see people staying with, you know, one brand, you know, for a plethora of products. And the biggest reason that people leave to go to other brands today is really just shopping for rates. So the survey highlighted that only 37% of borrowers said their lender of choice offered the lowest rate. So that's implying that 63% of borrowers knowingly chose a lender that did not have the the lowest rate. What are the drivers there? I think the, I think the ease of, of application, um, the ease of approval, um, there is an actual cost, you know, to go in and create a new relationship with a new financial institution. And so it's, it's a cost benefit analysis, right? And so if you can, if you can have that, these verifications already done, if you can be pre-qualified, if you can, and then if you do the sniff test to make sure that the rates aren't, you know, that far off, then I think most consumers, as you can see in the survey, are going to stick with their, with their current lender. Especially in a market where you have to put in multiple offers, I, I I'm curious. So I know this this survey was done over the last year, and I'm guessing some of these metrics would change considerably if it was done in in Q1 and Q2 2022. So 35 percent of the survey respondents had to put offers in on multiple homes. Uh, I, I think that's like 100 percent right now, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I can I can only imagine that the convenience or necessity of staying with the lender who's provided you a pre-approval or has your information already without that cost of going to build a new relationship becomes increasingly attractive in a scenario where you're putting in offers on multiple homes and um, don't have the the luxury of time to shop for rate or right. shop for relationship. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely correct. And as, as the market, as the market starts to uh, maybe ease a little bit, as interest rates go up, um, you know, I think I think the question is, will we continue to see, you know, that kind of behavior? Um, I think that the 
the strength of the relationship and the strength of the ease of the application process, the ease of ease of everything, people, it, it takes a lot of effort to go create a new relationship. And, and um, I think that, uh, I think that that metric will hold. So Nick, it feels like we're at a unique point in the the digital mortgage adoption phase where we, we might be getting close to that point where having digitally enabled point of sale and processing and underwriting is a true differentiator to really just kind of becoming a requirement. And if you look at the the data that's coming through in this survey, more and more borrowers are comfortable providing their digital data, providing their um, access to their their banking account information for automated underwriting, automated asset and income verification. So where do you think we are in that evolution of digital enabled as a differentiator to digitally enabled as a requirement? Um, so I think I think one of the things that that we will continue to see is we're going to continue to see that you know we talked about the 10 by 10 mortgage, right? Yep. Um, the idea of a 10-minute application, 10-day close. I think we're going to continue to see that go to kind of one factor lower, a 10-second application and a 10-minute close. And so, you know, in order for that to happen, you've got to have really uh, refined processes. You have to have, you know, the interchange between, you know, different players in that mortgage ecosystem come together and it has to all interoperate in a way that uh, that makes that possible, but I think you know the idea of a 10-second application and a 10-minute close is absolutely uh, the future. And so, uh, for lenders that are not rapidly moving to to digital today, um, you know, you imagine the cost savings that comes with that kind of a of a reduction in time. I think early on we did a study that showed that it was like one hundred and twenty-seven dollars a day. Um, as you know, as as if it takes you 65 days to close, the cost to close is a function of time. And so if you can reduce the time by making it fully digital and you're cutting out all kinds of costs. And so it comes to, it's a competitive threat to any mortgage lender who is not digital because you know those that are digital and that are refining the processes are going to be, um, you know, their, their cost to close their interest rate offers, it's going to be much lower. And, and as we talked about before, prices is, is king. I mean, 10 minute application and 10 day close is like ambitious and huge and, and might today might work well in a refi market, but has some other factors in a, in a, in a home purchase 10, 10 second and 10 minute. I mean, I mean, that's how do you how do you factor in the timelines needed for valuation, inspection, title, like all the other things that have have to happen before the keys are actually handed over? Is is all that changing in your vision for the future of housing finance? Absolutely. So, I mean, you look at the you look at the work of Fannie Mae with um, um, you know the work that they've done in 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 valuations and. Um, appraisals and um, you know there's there's a there's a ton of work happening and innovation happening within title within appraisals within all of these aspects of the lending process that make that vision of a 10 second application a 10 minute close or you know an instant refinance that makes that very feasible I mean I think back to my first home purchase and I actually kind of appreciated my 45 day timeline. It gave me a chance to really wrap my head around this massive investment that I am making. 
do you think that the lender comes in at a different point in the home purchase process? Like what, how do real estate agents and brokers need to need to adjust expectations in a world where lending is a instantaneous process versus something that stretches out the home buying um, timeline? I think that's probably a better question for you to answer because, you know, <laughs> my focus and our focus is really about, you know, just creating speed, right? So we create speed to decision and and speed to data collection, and we're all about speed. And so how that impacts the market, um, I'm sure, you know, there's all kinds of people that are better qualified to comment on that, but it's, uh, um, it is a, it very much is a reality. You know, one of the things that, one of the things that's happening in the market is digital identity. And you think about, um, you know, digital identity, self-sovereign identity, and the idea that a consumer can kind of have all their information sitting in their wallet and instantly give it to somebody and no verifications are required. So um, that's another piece of the innovation puzzle that's happening. Um, you know, the digitization of title and, and um you know, in a refi case, do you really have to follow the exact same process as a purchaser? Is the delta of information about that property from the last time you did title, you know, can you really find out that delta pretty quickly? And so anyway, there's 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 innovation happening that I know of and that I don't know of in all of those cases and how that impacts the market. That's probably for somebody else to say, I'm just about doing it really fast. Yeah. I mean, that's a it's a, it's an interesting mindset. And if you achieve that, that new vision of 10 by 10, you, you might be at a place where you're ahead of the industry or ahead of the market and looking for ways and solutions and partners that can pull the, pull the market forward with you. Cause I think you're going to scare the hell out of a lot of lenders when you tell them we can do a 10 second app and a 10 minute close. And, and not to mention the, all of the, uh, the ops employees that are going to be impacted like that. And we're already seeing some, uh, some shake out in the market as, as refi volume comes down, but might be an incredibly necessary move when you start seeing some of these earnings numbers come out in Q1, where the the cost to originate just isn't getting lower. So Nick, let's, let's talk more. It feels like we're signaling at an, ex- an acceleration here. And I know our, our publishing brand Finledger has talked a lot about the great acceleration in, in fintech. So let's talk about what's happened over the last two years. And I know you have an in, intense focus on, on speed and efficiency. How have you seen the last two years impact your vision of fintech, your vision of the future of mortgage? And, and, and how is that changing in the industry that we're talking about today, the housing finance world? think you know as we all I think we all know that covid has been a huge accelerant to digitization you know we expect everything to be digital we accept expect everything to be able to be done from home or from the office and uh, and so that acceleration you know in digitization is being taken advantage of and innovated on top of by lots of players and it's not just in lending right so payments and account openings so the idea of an instant account opening this you know this vision that i talked about of of uh, pre-verified information and the ability to um you know come to a lending process with information that's been pre-verified and trusted you know the 
consumers report that they like the convenience and simplicity of digital and they plan to continue. And you know, if you can reduce cost, reduce time and make it simpler, um, that's, that's what consumers want. And so the acceleration, I, th I think you know, there's all kinds of people that have said, well, it's like five years or 10 years of, of uh, condensation and in, in innovation. COVID has truly brought the world to digital is required and speed is and simplicity are expected. Is that so? I definitely understand the consumer theme there on what consumers expect, require and, and are ready for. What are you hearing from banks, from from mortgage banks, from large depositories? How is their vision of their technology goals and timeline and roadmap changed in the last two years? And we'd love to kind of hear kind of the, the, the backroom conversations you have as you're trying to bring finicity into some of these larger financial institutions and the, the things that they're thinking about today, they just might not have been thinking about in 2019. Well, I think you know one of the one of the things that that we've talked about for a long time is this idea of a financial institution, a bank, as kind of an operating system for your financial life. And um, I think it was Governor Lael Brainerd of the Fed who wrote an article, um, actually gave a speech about this as the financial institution, comparing it to a kind of the iPhone, you know, the idea of an operating system for your life. And so we started talking early on about banks and open banking and what that really means in that in, that in order for you to really be a, a great core for your customers, um, having APIs and having the ability to quickly integrate with third parties that are really good at one thing and giving your customers you know, a combination of really good core services combined with the ability to integrate with other third party services you know, you're really at the you're at the core of the operating system for your customer's financial life. And banks that get that are the ones that are going to win. It's all about integrations. It's all about not only providing great core services at low cost, but it's also about giving them access to the next new garage innovation um, because because the, this new innovation, does something using machine learning or AI with your data and information and really helps the consumer. And we know that the technology cycle for integrating into financial institutions, it's a pretty long cycle. And so giving consumers both great core and access to, to great third-party innovation, uh, that's a winning strategy for banks. Yeah. You hear from some of those garage startups and fintech that getting a big global logo on their client sheet can be a differentiator in, in capital raising and, and getting into new institutions. But if you're not well capitalized going into that relationship, it can also be a death nail of the, the pain of getting through vendor management and then integration, like all of your resources can go into getting into that, that one global account. So are you kind of pointing at as institutions improve their tech infrastructure, it's easier for them to, to test these new garage innovations without sucking up 18 months of a, of a startup's time and, and capital to, to test that, that capability? Yeah. And that's, that's really the power of these, these interfaces, whether it be, you know, a service bus or some kind of an API solution, the idea of giving your, giving consumers access to hundreds or thousands of third-party applications, um, that's the winning strategy. And so, um, 
you know, I understand there's obviously you have to have risk mitigation, you have, you know, regulatory responsibility, but, you know, blending the ability to innovate with that responsibility, um, there's no reason it should take 18 months to go through vendor management. You know, it's, it, uh, it should be, it should be easier than that. So. So, so in terms of consumer offering, where do you see financial institutions focusing their effort right now? What, what's the most important thing they're trying to bring forward in their, in their product offering or efficiency that makes their existing products better? Um, I think, I think, uh, you know, the, the most innovative, the largest financial institutions are really, they've gotten behind open banking uh, in the U S and globally, whether by, you know, being forced by regulators or, in the U.S., we've been better at being more bottoms up, um, and so there's tons of innovation that's happening through through creating interfaces that allow even silos within the bank to talk to, talk talk to each other. Um, and so I think I think the um, you know what we're seeing is we're seeing the largest banks that are making the investment. We're seeing platform players that are serving small to mid-sized financial institutions that are jumping on board, you know, uh, Pfizer, Jack Henry, others. And so we're going to see this digital enablement happen across the board here in, in the U.S. And we're seeing similar things in other markets. And so I believe that that vision of and the message of being core a core part of somebody's financial life is is winning out over a closed walled garden vision um, even if the result is the same right so you have a super app and you want your customer to come there and you provide for access to third parties you're having to i mean that's that's really the future is that consumers want to have everything fast cheap um, secure easy. And if they don't have to go someplace else to get that done um, and they are confident, think about Costco, you know, when was the last time I price checked at Costco? You know, it says you just go and you just buy stuff and because you trust that they're, you know, they got your back and buying in bulk is cheaper, right? That's right. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> why is every, why is every purchase $400 every time you leave? I don't know. But <laughs> I know totally. It's, it's crazy. But, you know, I think, I think that's the future is that is that the commoditization of pricing of just, you know, consumers know they have the ability to know what competitive prices are, you know, really fast. And so the organization who can put together a basket of services and provide access to third party innovation and those core services are price competitive and, you know, value competitive um, consumers are going to they're going to come to that super app all day long. Well, it seems like that convergence of services enabled by technology is a is a huge differentiator for depositories who are already touching multiple parts of consumers and, and businesses' financial lives. In the housing finance world, we've seen market share shift quickly over the last decade to, to independent mortgage banks. And I think more often than not, we see the depositories kind of come in and out of mortgage and back out a little bit and and back in and we're hiring, we're firing, we're focused, we're not. Um, but digital convergence seems to be something that would make mortgage banking more attractive and higher margin for the depositories. Do, do you think that theory holds and, and how does open banking influence the 
the power shift between independent mortgage banks and depositories who have the converged capabilities? I think, I mean, one of the reasons that independent mortgage banks have, you know, kind of risen to the top in, in the world of mortgage is because of the level of investment in innovation and digitization. Um, and that's resulted in lower costs. It's resulted in better consumer experiences. And so, um, you know, I think that that same thing is going to continue to hold true. Um, the, the, the platforms that can offer that same kind of service through a third-party brand, I mean, we know that, you know, most large banks are, um, well, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a bit of a generalization, but they, they tend to be resellers of other people's stuff. And so, um, you know, if you can come in and provide a great platform for a large brand who has the customer already in house and you can provide competitive services, you know, through their brand, that's a, that's a winning strategy too. I mean, the, the industry has been doing that through wholesale and correspondent relationships forever. But uh, as we look at the financial performance of some of the IMBs over the last couple of quarters, you that comment kind of has my my mind running of how um, retail and wholesale partnerships might might change in in coming years. It seems like there might be some some potential for a, a new face of uh, funding strategy in the in the mortgage ecosystem. Yeah, you definitely have a great you have a great uh, bird's eye view to all this stuff that's happening. And now we're going to take a a really quick break for this week's edition of the Mortgage Minute, brought to you by Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. I'm Tom Hutchins from Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions with today's non-QM minute. In a time when rates are increasing and refinance volume is decreasing. A focus on the real estate investors is a great strategy. We have a no-income DSCR product we call Investor Cash Flow. And what it is, it's an extremely easy loan where we're looking at the credit quality of the borrower, but we're not looking at their income or their tax returns or their employment. We're simply analyzing the cash flow that the investment property will generate. If the borrower qualifies based on that cash flow, they're going to get a loan. And the great news, it's very simple to do, and investors are not capped by how many loans they can actually put on the books. This is ideal for someone who's either maxed out on their Fannie Mae loans or just simply can't qualify using their tax returns. So the bottom line, it's a very easy, straightforward loan that we can get closed for you very quickly. And that's today's non-QM Minute. So Nick, June 23rd, 2020. Kind of a, a day that, that stands out in history for you? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, cool things about the, and it's always fun to go through the process of being acquired, achieving the great American dream. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it happened during COVID. <laughs> so, 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 so let me tell the audience, for the audience who's not as astute of uh, or hasn't Googled it yet, June 23rd, 2020 is the day that MasterCard and Finicity announced the, a combination, that MasterCard would be acquiring Finicity. Um, one of the, the first really large fintech deals that we saw uh, in, in early days of, of COVID. So Nick, I'll, I'll let you run forward there. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... Uh, we were actually in the middle of a C round of funding and, you know, met with MasterCard and, 
you know, they were super interested, you know, and we, we started, started the conversations with them and, and what, what, uh, what we saw early on was we saw that, okay, if, if companies like MasterCard, Visa, you know, these big global networks are interested in this space, um, it's going to be hard to compete with them. Um, and it's, uh, and also, we were very passionate about our achieving financial inclusion. I mean, very mission driven, you know, with our ultra FICO score, Experian boost and other, you know, these products that we helped enable. Um, we, we looked at the MasterCard footprint and we said, man, if we can, if we can do some of the same cool innovations here in the U S and we can take that on the road, um, you know, 190 plus countries, I mean, there's billions of people that could be helped by this. And so um, we were very excited about it early days because, because of the possibility of extending the mission. Um, but, you know, the, the 825 plus the earnout, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, was a, it was a dream come true. And five years prior, you know, we were, we were barely surviving. Yeah. And it's, I mean, for the, for the anointed, the folks that are in the FinTech and mortgage world, Finicity was a, was a name that everybody recognized. But if you just listen to the deal announcement on CNBC made it sound like it was a, an overnight success. Finicity has come out of, out of nowhere and had this massive deal with, with MasterCard. So um, tell us a little more about that, that history. And the, I, I know that you've, you're a co-founder of Finicity. You're, you're 20 years running before the deal was announced. Uh, and the, you just mentioned that that point five years before the acquisition where things weren't as rosy. Tell us about that evolution. Well, it was the was the founding vision of, of Finicity 20 years ago before the before the, even the dot com crash. So, I mean, like you've been through a few cycles. Was it to change uh, open banking and bring uh, automated income and asset verification to the mortgage industry? Uh, no, um, no. I was working. I was working for Three Com as a electrical engineer. You know, working on cool tech like Bluetooth and in the world of mobile. And Steve Smith, my partner, called me up and said, "Hey, I've got this idea. Um, we knew that mobile was coming to the table, and the mobile web was coming, and this idea of innovating on budgeting." And so the original vision was to go and create a competitor to Quicken that was mobile first uh, back in 2000. And the original vision had us connecting to one bank. And, um, and I jumped ship from a great job to go and, you know, Steve and I went, went off and, and uh, tried to make this thing work. And, you know, we quickly got to the place where we're like, eh, you know, we probably need to connect to more banks. And so we engaged with a, a third-party um, aggregation platform provider, and we went live with our product really in 2001, 2002, uh, supporting you know about 1,200 banks. And uh, the consumer adoption of our platform was really, really good. And we started as a free trial into a subscription-based product. So you know, subscription was not typical. And uh, 2004, we went to the web. So we were, you know, early pioneer into the web. Uh, JavaScript, you know, about 70% of JavaScript was the same across browsers. 
And, um, you know, we, we had this great subscription-based model, free trial and a subscription. Um, the number of connections started to increase. The company that we partnered with was like, hold on, we can't support all these connections. We did a deal with them to basically take over the adding and maintenance of these connections. And um, in 2005, Intuit acquired them. So Intuit wanted that data aggregation capability we actually became a provider of services to Intuit. So we're competing with Quicken at the same time as we're providing services to them. And, um, um, you know, it was just surreal, these twists and turns. Um, and then anyway, so we spent 15 years in this direct-to-consumer space. We, we did coaching. We partnered with the Southern Baptist Convention and, and you know, to really bring envelope budgeting digitally to consumers because that was, you know, the best way to budget. And in about 2014, 2012 was really kind of the birth of fintech um, financing and investment. And in 2013 and early 2014, we started to get a lot of questions from, from other fintechs that were like, hey, you know, I use your consumer app to, to determine whether a bank should be up or not. And so they were using Yodli or Intuit or Cash Edge or somebody. And they're like, you guys do really, really well. Can we get access to your platform? And we've never really thought about, you know, bringing data aggregation to the market because we were so focused on consumer wellness and, you know, financial wellness and budgeting. And uh, but ultimately just decided, well, you know, heck, why not? So uh, I took the platform slapped an API on top, you know, built a team, we slapped an API on top and, uh, and it's, it was just a rocket ship um, from 20, you know, 2014 on. So you took so that was like the pivot point of, of consumer facing, taking the capability that you built because you needed that for the consumer app and turning that into the, the, the B2B solution that ultimately became the 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 rocket ship that you rode for the the five or the next five or six years exactly exactly so what what did you do on the, did you did you deprecate the consumer side did you what did you guys sell, sell it off like what what happened to that that uh, budgeting focus it's still there envelopes is the application okay, okay. Um, you know it it became less and less you know it, it was it's really core to our mission right helping people make better spending decisions um, and so we we retained it the whole time. But the real opportunity was with open banking and enabling mortgage and, um, you know, payments and all the use cases of open banking. And so, you know, we we uh, we stayed true to our mission uh, at the core, but the growth engine was really in this B2B data aggregation space. And so we happened to be in the right place at the right time. We'd by 2014, we built out over 16,000 integrations with banks. And we're really good at it and good at maintaining those connections. And so we've, we were in the ocean on a surfboard. We knew how to surf and the big one came and we caught the wave and we were fully prepared. And so, I mean, that's really what entrepreneurism is about. It's about being in the water, uh, knowing how to surf. And then when the wave comes that you actually catch it, um, there's a lot of waves that we didn't catch. And, but this one we did, and we were able to ride it into the shore. 
That's a great analogy. I've heard lots of entrepreneurial analogies about getting in the game, like get, get off the bench, get in the game and, and, and find your shot. But I love, I love that surfing analogy. So the, the years go from 2014 uh, up, up to 2020, you, you've got every bank in the country, if, if not a large part of the world, uh, integrated in the platform, you're making an impact in the mortgage space. R- were you starting to do crossover into other parts of financial services or were you hundred percent mortgage leading up into the MasterCard uh, announcement? So uh, we had innovated in in mortgage and payments. Okay. So we we're actually a pretty big player in the payment space. That wasn't our focus. Our, it was our competitors' focus. Um, and we had ex- been extending into auto and other and personal lending. Um, we had extended into um, you know developing attributes to support credit decisioning. And so the data science effort that we we spun up, all of that was in was in place. Uh, another area that that I had spent a lot of time in was in digital identity, and uh, obviously Mastercard has has their own play there. And so we were able to, you know, dovetail into that. But but I saw early on the convergence of open banking, digital identity, consumer data rights. I mean, all those things were coming together, and so we were. You know, we were on on track to to kind of expand beyond the open banking space to include um, other services that you know would be even competitive to the other players in the market. Tell us about some of the the pros and cons that you thought about in in twenty twenty. You're 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 ra- planning on raising that Series C. Ultimately, choose to take take the path of. Um, doing a deal with MasterCard that that has some big implications on on you and your business and your product. Um, also, maybe, maybe positive or negative implications for uh, the mortgage industry and the payments players, player, payments players that you have been serving. H- how did you think through some of those pros and cons of of making that decision to sell the business and and, and join MasterCard? Um, you know, so you know, one of the things that we did part of our strategy early on was. Uh, uh, we were partners in creating the financial data exchange. So we knew that the standards, you know, uh, for open banking in the U.S. didn't really exist. And so the idea that, you know, we could not only not only um, extend our business because MasterCard has 30,000 bank relationships globally, but we could also kind of extend standards and, the vision of interoperability, not only within a market but global interoperability, was was a pretty cool, um, a pretty cool idea. Um, I think you know the the vision of uh, well, what's what's interesting is that after the acquisition, you say, well, did we sell too early, right? Did we, you know, I think Plaid, had, you know, they had they had a a bid in from Visa that didn't get approved by the DOJ, but they were valued five. And then they raised money at 15. And you're like, oh my gosh, well, did we, did we set too early? And, um, but ultimately, you know, it was the right time and it was the right opportunity. And we had very patient investors um, and MasterCard was the right play for us. Absolutely. And I've told I've talked to multiple entrepreneurs who, you know, have these opportunities. And I said, dude, um, your family's more important. <laughs> you know, when, when the timing is right, even though you may not have the glorious, you know, the value that you think you should be at, um, 
or you can see, you know, getting to a bigger valuation if you just wait another year. You know, the the personal cost of being an entrepreneur is super high, and that's one of the things that I that I didn't totally understand while I was in the game is that, you know, your family, your spouse, your your friends, um, when you're in it, you're in it twenty four seven. And so the opportunity to exit, the opportunity to partner with somebody who has a vision that can kind of help you extend that vision and give you the opportunity to become a real person, um, there's a value there. And so um, I think the message to entrepreneurs is, is that, yes, I mean, it's a great, it's, it's great to have that story, but there's costs associated with, with, uh, with playing the game. And, um, you know, if you just know when it's the right time and it's never going to feel like it's worth enough, but, um, think about (laughs) what your life is going to be like, um, it's gotta be, had to be an incredibly hard decision. And I mean, it's, I really kind of respect you brought up the topic. I mean, FinTech valuations did shoot through the roof in in the last um, 15, 18 months. But now, now we might be in a time period where there's some down rounds and valuations aren't as favorable as they were in, in Q4. So it's a uh, it's, I guess we can kind of take it back to your analogy of being in the water on the surfboard, ready to catch the wave. Um, you, you never know when the, that swell is going to be gone too. So uh, there's ultimately a time where you have to make a decision that's, that's right for the business and, and right for you personally. Um, that personal topic kind of leads us into our, my last question of the the day, Nick, and this is a question I've been asking all of our guests since I've uh, kind of jumped back into the the host seat on, on housing news. So um, if you did not dedicate your career to technology and financial innovation and, and, uh, and building your business at Finicity and now uh, leading innovation at MasterCard, what would you be doing? What does an alternate universe look like for you? Um, I would be a school bus driver and a stay-at-home dad. I, I, I like that. That is a, that is the first time I've heard school bus driver. I, uh, with your location in, in Utah, I kind of thought you were going to say ski and snowboard all day, but, um, but <laughs> school bus driver and stay-at-home dad. I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love tech. I mean, tech is, it just fires me up and, I mean, so I've always been in technology. We love skiing. I mean, my daughter is competing in pre-Olympic uh, skiing. She actually quit school the second wow. semester of this year to go and compete. And so, how how old is she? Uh, she's eighteen. So five kids. Um, I grew up in Arizona, so I ski with a Phoenix accent. But all of my kids <laughs> and native speakers, um, you know, backflipping you know, jumping and racing skiers. And so uh, it's, it's been a, you know, the family is, let me tell you, I'll tell you a quick, a quick, a quick uh, story. The day after the transaction, I got a call from a gentleman that, you know, has has raised a lot of money in Utah and somebody I I respect greatly. And, uh, and I didn't really know him, but I had his contact information in my, in my phone and so he called me up. I was like, "Oh, he's calling." And so I I took the call and I said, "Hey, um, I said, hey, how's it going?" He said, "Hey, congratulations and welcome to the club." And I'm like, "Well, what club?" And uh, you know, he said, "You know, 
handful of people have uh, in Utah have taken a company from zero to a billion dollars in valuation, and and you're one of them. Congratulations! And uh, you know my ego was tingling a little bit, and I'm like, yeah, thanks. And uh, and then he says, and now you have a choice. Dead silence, and I'm like, what what choice? <laughs> he says, um, he says I've. I've helped a lot of people get very wealthy. And in the majority of cases, it's ruined their lives. Says you have a choice to choose the path of service or choose the path of consumption. And the choices you make in the next week, couple of weeks and months will set your path. He said, choose wisely. And he hung up. Um, that was, that was a, an epic moment. And so, you know, the message I think is um, entrepreneurism is hard. It impacts you in ways that you don't really, you don't really know and see. And it's great to have the story, but what really matters is your family. What really matters is your friendships. And what really matters is how you're helping people. And um, so I'm trying to take the, the, the better path and um, trying to expand the dialogue with entrepreneurs as to, what the reality is, is that, you know, this stuff doesn't really matter. I mean, it's cool and it does matter. And, you know, it, it, it makes a difference in how we do transactions and live our lives and stuff, but the personal cost and the, uh, of, of going down this path can be high. And so we should all choose wisely. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the housing news podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.